It is an, an honor for him to even ask me. I do not take that lightly. Y'all know Kyle, Pastor Kyle. And um, he's particular. And so I don't take this lightly, and I certainly put a lot of prayer into it. And how many of y'all know that in this church, you expect the unexpected? Even more so with God. Amen? And I did not expect this, but God is leading this way, and I hope that I can honor you with the word that's brought tonight. Amen? So before I pray, I wanted to kind of get into the title of this message. I had the title, Regifting, before I had the message. So I wasn't really sure how, what God was going to be doing with that, regifting, right? Automatically, you know, the, the meaning of regifting, at least Merriam-Webster dictionary or whatever says to give someone a gift that was previously received from someone else. That's pretty easy. Most of us know that, right? Well, if you put that little meme on the, <laughs> there we go. It says, what a wonderful present. The person I regift it to is going to love it. <laughs> well, we know in our culture that here at Christmas, we may be tempted to, to regift, okay? Whether to save money, get rid of clutter, or because we genuinely believe that a receiver will like that gift more than we did, or that maybe they can use it more than we did, right? Um, here recently, my son and his daughter-in-law, they were moving to Florida, have moved, but I was helping them pack. And so she was giving me all the stuff to take the Goodwill, and I saw this brand new in-the-box pasta maker. And I said, you're giving this away? Why don't you re-gift it? <laughs> I didn't think she'd take me seriously. She said, you know what, that's a good idea. I said, but don't re-gift it to me because I'm not a pasta maker. I buy my pasta from the grocery store, so don't re-gift it to me. But our culture states it's inconsiderate and rude to the receiver and the one who gave it to you, if discovered. But the one who gave it to you may have put a lot of time, effort, and money into this gift. Although our cultural etiquette says re-gifting is a no-no, we are going to discover that the kind of re-gifting in this message is not only acceptable, but it is expected of us, those who believe in Christ and the gospel message. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you right now for your word and your truth. And in the words of my pastor... No one here wants to hear my opinion, but we definitely want your word. So I pray right now that your word come through and the truth of it, Lord, change hearts just like we sung about. Your word is truth. Jesus change hearts. He heals. And I pray that all of that comes through this message tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... <laughs> How does regifting relate to the gospel, and is it applicable to the spiritual lives and its growth? Well, let's start with the initial giver. The word tells us in James 1.17, we'll put that up there, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So here we see that God is the giver of good gifts, and the giver of perfect gifts. So, him giving us Jesus, what could we expect from Jesus? He is that perfect and good gift, right? So, we established that. He gave us Jesus, he, who went above and beyond sacrificing, loving, and forgiving. And this cost him not only a high price, but the highest price, his life. 
He was spotless and blameless. He was the perfect gift and sacrifice. Jesus' time walking among us was spent continually giving and teaching us the value of our gifts. Now, our church talks a lot about gifts. And in that, in that gifting, when we look in the Bible, we don't always think about the things I'm going to talk about tonight as gifts, right? We think about prophecy and, you know, those up here on stage singing and all of that. But the gifts I'm going to talk about not tonight, we don't normally think about as being gifts per se. So when Jesus, Jesus' time walking among us was spent continually giving, teaching us the value of our gifts, in 2 Corinthians 9-7, we understand that we are to give cheerfully, not grudgingly. Is that up there? Yes. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, when you get gifts from your children for a birthday or whatever holiday, how does it make you feel? It's like, oh, man, I got to get mom and dad a gift, you know, or, hey, mom, dad, I got you this really cool gift. It's exciting to receive that, isn't it? And you don't get it a, a begrudging attitude or anything. And that's what he's talking about. He's concerned with the attitude, or what I like to say is the heartitude, of your gift in, in which you give it. So i got to ask, are our gifts to him spotless? Are they given with a pure heart? And we can dwell on that for a moment. From gifts of tithing, being up here right now, do you think I'm not nervous and excited at the same time? Gifts that God or opportunities that God gives us, how are we approaching them? These are opportunities and allowing you to regift the gifts he's given you. Throughout the Bible, there are many examples of regifting. Now, I've only chose a few to go over, but... What's really cool about the gifts or regifting God's gift is that you don't actually lose the gift that you regift. Did y'all get that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so say to the person next to you, you are gifted. Are gifted. Do y'all believe that? Because I know everybody in here is gifted. So we're going to start with the wisdom of Solomon. From the Old Testament to the New, we see that God is he loves to give. He is a giver. So if you love to give, you come by it naturally, right? I love to give. You can ask my husband. <laughs> He's like, how much did you spend? <laughs> you know, because I do love to give. But our first example is in 1 Kings 3, 5 through 14. We see that King Solomon was gifted with wisdom by God so that he could impart that wisdom to others while ruling the kingdom of Israel. So 1 Kings 3, 5, 4, yeah, 5 through 14. At Gibeon... The Lord appeared, I have to turn around because it's bigger and I can see it better. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David, but I am a little child. Literally, it was seven years old, I believe. I do not know 
how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge, your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Now for a seven-year-old or child, I may have his age wrong, but I'm going by memory, y'all. That's pretty wise to ask for that, isn't it? (laughs) So he already had some wisdom instilled in him by God by asking that. So you don't think of many little kids that can talk like that, but he knew what to ask. Sorry. After reading the text, we find we need to ask ourselves, are we asking God for the right gifts? What gifts are you asking God for? In Solomon's case, he not only asked for the right gift, but he asked for one that he could re-gift. His influence was a gift to those who were under him in, the, in this kingdom that he was ruling over. An example of this is also found in six, verses 16, 28 through 28, sorry, in the judgment of the two harlots. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose, or when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Sound a lot like our kids, don't it? Arguing <laughs> back and forth. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother." 
And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now leave that verse up there just for one second. On verse 28. When all of Israel heard of the two harlots, they saw the wisdom of God was in him. Do others see God's gift in you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Miss Roxanne a little bit. Is that okay? I wasn't going to do this, but it, last night I was able to go over to her house and sit under many things that she was talking about as far as um, things that God had taught her. It was an amazing time. We were all just sitting around there just soaking it all in. God had given her these gifts to share with us, to mentor us, to teach us about, to grow us, right? I saw God's gift in her. It was very easy to see. <laughs> but gifts are not to be a bragging point, but to be used humbly. Solomon asked for wisdom through a heart of humility, and he regifted it by using it to rule the kingdom. Therefore, those in the kingdom were able to receive the effects of wisdom of God used through Solomon. How are we affecting those around us? with our gifts? Do we even care to affect those around us with our gifts? Later in scripture, though, we see that although Solomon remained wise, he didn't always act upon his wisdom. And when we choose to stop using God's gift, then our regifting stops. Think about it a minute. When we stop using our gift, that regifting stops. Your gift was not meant for you. We are here to first glorify God and to minister and serve others. And when you stop using the gift of wisdom, foolishness sets in. Our gifts are to glorify God and minister or re-gift it to others. But last week, if y'all were hearing the message, Kyle mentioned, or if you have, didn't hear it, go back and listen to it. But Kyle mentioned in his message that a point of a gift is to serve someone who is out of alignment. Are we serving with our gifts? Are we getting involved? Now, his message was very pointed about a certain direction that it, that it went as far as getting involved. But in general, are we getting involved with our gifts? Your gift was not meant to stay right here inside this church building or amongst just this, these people. Yes, you utilize them here but it is meant to go out and to glorify God and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around you. So, are we serving others with a gift? Are we getting involved? And where can you serve with your gift? And the first thing that we think of is church. And like I said, it's not, it was never meant to stay here. So you can impart wisdom in all directions with your family, with friends, with at work and church. And if you don't have wisdom, James 1, 5 says you can ask God for it and it will be given to you. So I'm just here to tell you that none of you, me included, if I say you, when I'm asking these questions, I am including myself 100%. So none of us has any reason to be walking around not using wisdom because the Bible tells us, the word of God tells us that if we ask, it will be given to us. I'm just saying, y'all might want to write this verse down. 
<laughs> it's a good verse, good one to have. Amen? Another aspect of regifting can be found in John chapter 4, where we see Jesus giving the Samaritan woman a gift that she wouldn't refuse. And not only that, she wanted to make sure everyone knew where to get the gift themselves. John 4, 1 through 10. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sakar. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so bear with me. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. First, Jesus gave her the gift of his time. Did you know that your time can be a gift to someone? My mother is 84 years old, and she very much wants to spend time with her children and her grandchildren, and I get it. She's pretty much shut up in her her home most of the time because she doesn't get around very well. We can minister to her through our time, and I understand I've raised two boys. They are out of the house now. You would think I would have more time, but your time can go in a heartbeat and get just clouded up with all kind of things. So we, I know those with children, it's even more. So we have to make a point to make time for those around us and don't miss those opportunities that God is telling us to minister into. Your time is a gift. Use it appropriately. God wants you to have the time to be used. Are we willing to make that time for him to be used? So first he gave her the gift of time. He made sure that his path crossed a Samaritan's woman's path. Then we see him give her discretion. He arranged their meeting privately. The disciples, they went out to get food, and knowing that he would be revealing private matters about her, to her, those private matters are found in verses 16 through 18. I'm not going to tell you because they're private, (laughs) but you can go read them. It'll get you in your Bible. Then in verse 25 through 30, he reveals himself as the Christ. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. He was gifting her the gospel message. He was gifting himself the living water. 
And finally, in verses 39 through 41, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. We see that she regifted what Jesus gave her through the word of her testimony and by letting them know where to find the gift of Jesus. Where did they have to go to get this Jesus? But there's another gift I noticed that the Samaritan's woman regifted while reading this. Imagine how surprised this woman must have been by his revelation to her and the gift of salvation he had offered her. Here she was, looked down upon the Jews because she was a Samaritan, but also by her own people as well because she didn't exactly have a stellar reputation. After all, the reason she went to the well to draw water in the middle of the day was so that she would not have to encounter other people who based her, her significance off her reputation. She did not want to encounter other people who based her significance off of her reputation. Are people avoiding you because of your judgment of them and that you won't befriend someone who needs the gift of love and grace? Maybe they or you are avoiding relationships because of fear of rejection or being judged. I heard a message recently, I think it was Priscilla Shire, and she said, if you don't let anyone close enough to hurt you, then you won't let anyone close enough to bless you. I'm going to read that again. If you don't let anyone close enough to hurt you, then you won't let anyone close enough to bless you. We've got to be willing to take that risk. God did not mean for us to be alone, starting from the beginning. There is unity amongst believers. We minister to each other. And I've got to, I've got to tell you, for those who want to isolate themselves for fear of being hurt or whatever reason, you're not doing yourself a favor or others a favor. God's called you to use your gift to re-gift, and you're missing that blessing. You are missing that blessing. Jesus didn't shun her. He showed up asking for a drink. Now, sure, Jesus was in human form and would have the natural desire to quench his thirst, but did he really need this woman to do it? No, Jesus was on a mission <laughs> to gift her with the gospel and forgiveness. He wanted to let her know that although others didn't want to look upon her, that God does see her, and he loves her. And what did she do? She ran and told the people about Jesus, and giving her testimony, and in giving her testimony to people that shunned her, she offered or regifted them forgiveness. She immediately regifted the forgiveness that she received by telling them where they could find the greatest gift of all, Jesus the Messiah, who they had all been waiting for. Are we really that quick? I mean, imagine the mundane feeling of going up in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, to get water because you're trying to avoid all these people that want to judge you and cast you down and all of that. And then you meet this man there, Jesus, who says he's the Messiah. And then he starts proving he really is. The excitement within her. She was probably so excited to tell anybody, she really didn't care who it was at the time. <laughs> Have you ever been that excited? 
So when she got there and was telling all these people that shunned her, was that not an act of forgiveness? Am I saying that right? It was. And we need to be that quick with our forgiveness. This is a huge deal in the church. Are you regifting the forgiveness you received from God? Matthew 16, 14 through 15 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In Mark eleven twenty five, it says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. If there is anyone you are withholding forgiveness from right now, now is the time to re-gift the forgiveness you've received. There is no reason to wait. None. You can't wait on them to ask for forgiveness. That's not what he says to do. You're, it's best for you. You're doing it just as much for you as you are that other person. Whether they, whether they receive it or not really doesn't matter. It's where your heart is. They have to answer for where their heart is. Now, my brother-in-law shared with me one time, um, he, he finally knew that he had forgiven his biological father when he could talk about him without saying anything negative about him. That's pretty telling. That's a good little meter to go by. And that's always stuck with me because I've really had to you know, check myself a whole lot more than once, <laughs> about forgiving. Because you can sit there and say, oh, I forgave so-and-so because they did this and this and this and that and that and they did this wrong and blah, 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 but oh, I forgive them. Did you really? Nah. There's not a whole lot of forgiveness. You're, not, you're certainly not serving them discretion, are you? So God has to really work on me with that too because I can mouth off, ask Taylor Smith. I'll go to her office. She works right around the corner from me. I'll get mad about something at work, and I'm sitting down in her office. Blah, 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 you know, and she lets me vent, but then I have to go repent. <laughs> so what good is that? So anyway, so we all deal with it in one form or another, that forgiveness. So when you stop regifting forgiveness, bitterness sets in. Forgiveness is a huge deal in the church. It's not just about unbelievers. We're just as guilty. I see it all the time. Because when we're talking about those people that hurt us or did whatever, we haven't forgiven. So right now, I just want to re us, everyone in this room, just to reflect and ask God, ask the Holy Spirit. Maybe you think you've forgiven everybody. You can't think of anybody. Well, maybe the Holy Spirit needs to reveal that person to you. Forgiveness drags you down. It is a bitter, cold, dark tunnel to go through. And it's hard to get out of. Because that hurt can run deep. I'm just going to pray right now. I'm going to interrupt this right now and just pray. Father God, we love you and we want to serve you. And the only way we can do that correctly is with a pure heart, with a forgiving heart. 
Jesus taught us how to forgive. He was the best example. He was the pure example of how to forgive because he forgave us. How dare we not forgive others? There is nothing that you will not forgive if we come to you with a heart of repentance. So, Father, right now, if there is anyone that any of us, including me, has not forgiven within our hearts, Lord, I just pray right now that you would check us up and that you would reveal that to us so that we can lay that at the altar and that we can offer them for forgiveness. Maybe that person isn't available to go to and say, I forgive you. Maybe they don't even know they need forgiveness, but it's still in your heart not to forgive. And they may have hurt you deeply and you may feel justified, but God is our healer. So we lay it now at the altar that we can use these gifts gifts that you've given us and re-gift forgiveness to others in Jesus name amen that's a big one the next lesson of regifting I found is in Matthew 8 1 through 4 when Jesus heals a leper and I almost didn't use this one because I read it in Matthew and then I read it in Mark and Mark goes a little in more detail about what happened after the healing but I'll I'll Check it. I'll fill y'all in in just a second. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. <laughs> Again, Jesus went where no one else would go. People with leprosy were shunned. They were put in a camp with other leopards, and they couldn't get out. The only way they got out was either dying or being healed. So people were scared to get anywhere around them. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that on The Chosen, that um, certain scene where he heals that leper and the disciples were like no 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 get away get away and Jesus is like chill I got this you know I love that scene anyway they're scared to get anywhere around him but as this leper approached Jesus Jesus didn't back away or shout at the leper to stay away instead Jesus approaches the leper he reaches out his hands and lays his hands on him and miraculously heals him and the first question that popped up in my mind says do we love others enough to reach out and touch their affliction what afflictions do you distance yourself from that needs God's light poured into it? That's a big question, because there are some. There are some. God revealed there's things that I shun away with, you know, I'm, I, or shy away with, I should say. I didn't think I would, but there are some things I'd rather not deal with, and I'm sure Pastor Kyle probably feels that way, too, when, he, when he's approached all kind of, well, all kind of things approach him to reach out and touch. And he's like, hmm. <laughs> and I can't blame him. But if we are called to be his light, if we are called to be like Christ, there's nothing that he shies away from. 
There's a lot of things in our culture that we don't want to deal with. A lot of things going on right now. You know, the government, all kind of stuff. You know, it's sin that people are falling into or the way they believe and all this kind of stuff. Jesus' word can heal all of that. It can slice through it. It's a two-headed sword. It slices and dices and puts the truth in there and heals people, reveals things, redeems things. We talked about a lot, um, I say talked, we sang a lot about depression tonight, and it was mentioned several times. Are we really willing to love someone enough to touch that affliction? It's not an easy one to deal with. Some people don't know how to handle that, but God does. All you got to do is take them to him. The Holy Spirit will work through you, but all you got to do is take them to him. And maybe they know Christ. There's a lot of Christians that deal with depression. It's a real thing. But Jesus knows how to deal with it, and he knows how to love them, and he wants to use you to do it. So don't be afraid of that. If you don't feel equipped to do it, goodness knows I don't right now doing this. There are many other people I could think that probably do a much better job up here than me. But he will equip. So I'm not going to close that door in his face. (laughs) And he doesn't want you to either. Whatever you're facing, whatever he said, go to, go to. And he will give you the words. Just pray over them. Just love them. Just spend time with them. All of that is a gift. Jesus loved you enough to touch your affliction, and he's called us out of our comfort zones to have faith and go outside the norm. Go beyond what culture dictates and touch the affliction of others, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual, with his healing power, with his word. Jesus then tells the leper in verse 4, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commands as a testimony to them. The gift in the New Living Translation refers to it as the offering, which is found in Leviticus 14, 1 through 8. Y'all can go back and read that, but it tells about what, they had to, what the lepers had to do. Once a priest inspected the man and received the sacrifice, the man would be declared officially and ceremonially clean and allowed to return to his community. So if the leper was told by Jesus not to tell anyone, not allowing him to testify, then what was his re-gift supposed to be? Well, that's the question I had, and like, oh, maybe this wasn't the right story. Why was I led to this story? Hmm. But the re-gift, the Holy Spirit told me, would be his obedience. You might ask how, how, because in Mark 1, It gives the same account of the story until you reach verse 45. So let's just go to 45. 40, because we've already read pretty much all of this. There we go. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. I always want to say desert, but deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. (laughs) So, we see the leper was actually disobedient, right? 
And although God can work all things together for good for those who love him, it does not give us license to be disobedient. By not being obedient, the leper caused great difficulty for Christ to enter the city, and he was bombarded by the masses. So Christ had a plan that the disobedience created chaos in. How many times have we created chaos in God's plan? I have. I can hold up my hands and my toes and my fingers, everything, more than once, causing chaos in God's plan. The same way disobedience influences bad behavior to those around you, obedience influences good behavior to those around you. We teach this to our children, to be obedient, right? Why do we do that? Obviously, it's good for them and those around them. So your obedience affects not only you, but those around you. Your obedience is a testimony of your faithfulness to God. The world sees plenty of disobedience and its chaotic effects. So your obedience is a light in the darkness. In Acts 9, we see the di this difference between obedience and disobedience and its effects in the life of Paul. Everybody knows who Paul is, right? In the New Testament? Mm-hmm. Pretty much wrote most of it. So in Acts 9, 1 through 6, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Hmm. Paul. There's a huge difference between Paul before Saul, before when he was disobedient, and then him after his obedience, right? Uh, like a total turnaround killing Christians, locking them up, whatever he could do to them. So look at what happened when Paul became obedient after his encounter with the Lord on the Damascus road. Previously, he was disobedient, affected the lives of many Christ followers, whether it was through imprisoning them or killing them, all in the name of his religion, being zealous for his Jewish beliefs, being religious, right? So, Look what happened when Paul became obedient after his encounter with the Lord on the Damascus Road. Verses 9, 13 through 19. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. 
So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And if you continue to read, you'll see how he grew into his role as a missionary. But it says as you, pretty much through the whole New Testament, you'll see the effects of his transformation. He wrote a lot of it. It still affected many Christians, his transformation, but this time in a way that brought many the gospel and broke them out of bondage, much like Paul was, was in before his transformation such as the religious spirit that he was sporting. And his teachings are still doing the same today. Do not underestimate the power of your faithfulness and obedience to God. Obedience is a powerful regifting to others who are witness of it. The gifts God gave to Paul are still being regifted to us today. When obedience stops, it's replaced with rebellion and separation from God. Disobedience to God is sin. And we covered regifting wisdom, forgiveness, and obedience. And there's a couple of more I want to go over, so bear with me. It won't be long. The story of Joseph and his brothers. Who all knows that story? Well, it's kind of a long story. It's in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And no, I'm not reading all of them. But we read about Joseph and his brothers there. There's a whole lot of forgiveness regifting in this story. But another aspect of regifting stood out to me. Joseph was favored by his father Jacob, right? So let's read in Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was a son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. That was not the best idea. And they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph's brothers envied him out of jealousy. They conspired to kill him. In Genesis 37, 19 through 36, it says, Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. 
Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let on our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him without doubt. Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. I know that's long, but y'all needed to know, if you hadn't read it recently, what Joseph was dealing with. So instead of killing him, they sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites, who then resold him to Potiphar in Egypt. But God had a plan. How many know that God has a plan for your life? Amen. But through a series of events, Pharaoh found favor with Joseph and made him ruler of Egypt. He went from prisoner to literally governor of Egypt. Now, ain't God cool? Do you think he can do that with your life? Do you really? Because some of us don't live that way. We live in our past, or we live in our hurt, but we don't live on what God can do with us. Through a series of events, Pharaoh found favor with Joseph, and then during the seven years of plenty, Joseph stored up food. When the seven years of famine hit, his brothers needed to go to Egypt to find food. They presented themselves to the governor of the land, because their dad had sent them out to find food. They had to go to Egypt. They presented themselves to the governor of the land, which was, guess who? Joseph and whom they did not recognize. But Joseph recognized them, but did not reveal himself to them at first. But when he finally does reveal himself, we begin to see his regifting of not only forgiveness, but of grace. Verses 40, chapter 45, verses 3 through 14. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. 
Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. There was a lot of relief coming out of Joseph when he saw his, his brothers, when he was able to give them forgiveness and grace. It poured out of him. Joseph graced his brothers, father, and their whole household with not only food, but had them move from Canaan to the best of the land in Egypt as prompted by Pharaoh, and they would eat off the fat of the land. Through Joseph's regifting of grace, many blessings came to his father and brothers. Joseph walked away from vengeance and replaced it with grace. Are you regifting grace? Because when grace stops, we are left to people's vengeance and pride. Romans 12, 19 tells us that vengeance is the Lord's to deal with, not ours to deal with. There's no greater example of grace than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who humbly poured out all these gifts and so many more. It all began with a loving God who provided his son so long ago. A son who exemplified how we are to regift him to the world. How are we to regift the gospel that he so sacrificially gave us? By being willing to love people enough to sacrifice for others. We are to regift that rare depth of love that Jesus gives us, to be concerned for those who do not know Christ, and are you willing to sacrifice your time, money, and energy, comfort, and safety to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are we willing to sacrifice? We are a culture of convenience. We don't want people getting in our way. We don't want our schedules messed up. <laughs> Can you imagine what thought went into the gifts that the, ma the Magi, we call them the wise men, we refer to them as, brought to the one they knew to be their Savior and the Savior to the, of the world? What gift, what, how much thought went into those gifts? Those gifts meant something. In Matthew 2, 11, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gifts they brought to the baby Jesus were valuable, costly, and had very significant meaning. Frankincense was a gift of deity. That seems very fitting. Gold was a gift for a king. That's also fitting. And myrrh was a spice for a person who was going to die. Do the gifts we present to Christ have meaning? Are they presented with the right heartitude? As we see through the life of Christ, the greatest gift comes through sacrifice. He paid the ultimate sacrifice to gift us eternal life. It was valuable, it was costly, and it was very significant in meaning. 
All the gifts I've mentioned in this sermon and many more flowed originally from this one source. What gifts do you bring as gifts to the Messiah? We tend to think of the gifts from God only being talents like singing and painting, dancing or playing an instrument, but the gifts he allows us to re-gift to others like forgiveness, wisdom, obedience, grace, and love are all the more powerful because it's sacrificial and resembles our Lord and Savior. None of his gifts were meant to keep for ourselves. They all embody the gospel of Jesus Christ and were meant to re-gift to others. What an awesome gift to Christ by re-gifting what he's freely given you. Is he worthy of the best that you have to give? While we're out buying loved ones presents of clothes, jewelry, and everything this Christmas season, and like every Christmas season, have we overlooked the greatest gift of all that we can give them? The Father in heaven knows how to give good gifts to his children, and the greatest gift you can give your children is him. What value do the material gifts hold in comparison to what Christ has given us to re-gift? A simple reminder, just as a simple reminder to help us stay focused. This may be a very simple sermon to most, but it's also a simple reminder to stay focused. One way to tell if people, or one way to tell if your gift is glorifying God is if people walk away feeling like they've just been in your presence or the presence of God. When we stop regifting his gifts, then we lose his presence working through us, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, presence working through us. Now, I don't know if much was revealed to (laughs) y'all through this, but I do hope it was a, a good reminder of what we're supposed to be doing with all the gifts, not just the ones that we have focused in our mind as our talents, but the ones that have been so freely given you and that will will move the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Amen. Amen. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you have led us to this place to re-gift all that you've given us. You are our God. And we don't take that lightly. We don't take being your child lightly your followers we do not take lightly lord we want to be used of you so father i just praise you right now and thank you for the opportunity to re-gift all that you've given us in jesus name amen